The statements and views expressed on the Voices and Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices and Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. I am your host, Mangala Kinnison. Today, I'm so glad to have Dr. S.N. Nyek back on the show as our guest. Dr. Nyek is an associate professor at the University of Colorado Boulder and was a visiting scholar at the Vulnerability and Human Condition Initiative and the Feminism and Legal Theory Project at Emory Law. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for welcoming me again. <laughs> you recently published a new book titled Gender, Vulnerability Theory, and Public Procurement, Perspectives on Global Reform. And you mentioned that it's the first book to integrate vulnerability theory into public procurement studies in the global and comparative perspectives. You had a previous book related to public procurement called Public Procurement Reform and Governance in Africa that was published in 2016. Can you tell me a bit about the publication of this new volume and how your thinking has changed since your work on procurement back in 2016? As part of my dissertation project, like any other graduate students, you know, you you look around and see where the gaps are. And I um, identified in an emerging dynamic in in public-private relations. But in the United States, I was also very shocked that there wasn't a lot of work. There wasn't a lot of scholarship, especially in political science, where one could find scholarship to engage with. Most of these had to do with, let's say, war and waste uh, military procurement in Afghanistan and, and things like that. So I actually ended up writing something that is more of a historical view on procurement. And very quickly after finishing grad school, I realized I was right in terms of my hunch that the market was going to be more aggressive in carving a space, a public space, that the government and our, and some of us scholars could not ignore, not only in the United States, but also globally. So by the end of 1990s, early 2000s, as a result of a number of things that I'm not going to be talking about, there has been a global movement to liberalize public procurement. Now, public procurement is what? It's basically, simply put, is the processes through which government will acquire from the private sector that can be for profit and non-profit. The, the tools, the goods, the services, the works that it needs to fulfill its private mission. And that definition also, there is also what happens when government actually want to uh, dispose of, of assets. That also is part of procurement. But when you, in the definition I just gave you, you already, anyone could note that the assumption is that government may not have the means, but at least it has a check, you know, so I don't have maybe too much expertise building a road myself, but I have a check, I can write a check. And that even is not always the case, because there are different ways in which government go around to raise money to be able to fulfill its mission. So what then we see there is that government today doesn't have 100% all the means to 
be responsible, to be responsive, and to rise to the occasion sometimes. What does it mean then? What does it mean? What I was seeing in terms of my reading of contemporary cases, uh, mostly in Africa and, 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 and elsewhere, what I noticed was that the same issues appeared everywhere, regardless of the GDP of, of nations. So you would rarely see a comparative study between the United States and Chad, for example. Most people would say, well, that is ridiculous, right? But but when you, you, you take maybe a state like New York and you actually find a level of analysis that makes sense, and you then look at procurement dynamics for Chicago, you might be surprised, but why is it that I'm reading things that looks like South Africa or Nicaragua, right? And that is what started puzzling me. And that was to say the press liberalization was because somehow in this kind of neoliberal current that asserted the power of the market over everything else, the assumption has been that the market is efficient. So the government is slow, the government is spending a lot, wasting a lot. So why don't we sort of put some, some order here? But that's not what I was seeing empirically. I was seeing that in some cases, the government can actually be weakened after entering public-private partnerships. And to document that anyone can look at, let's say, arbitration cases at international courts and realize that, oh, there is a problem here. This public-private partnership are not as perfect, as efficient as we will, we will want to accept. But I didn't have a theoretical tool. Because so far, when you look at this scholarship around this, whether you call them public-private partnership or, or government outsourcing or public procurement or government purchasing, some people look at it from a policy perspective only, mostly those who do, people in, in public administration and rarely in political science. And then you have those who are mostly lawyers who are about, well, are the laws actually, uh, uh, national laws in sync with international expectation for trade and fairness, competition, a lot of those things. And then you have perhaps the business people who are talking about, well, uh, where is opportunity created? What are the problems with entry firms and all of that? But nobody was actually allowing us to think about these, number one, provisionally, at least as, as partners. And therefore, when in 2019, I approached Martha and wanted to spend some time thinking about this as a visiting scholars, that was really when I sort of took time to sit down and engage with vulnerability theory. In there, I found some gaps, and I also found promising ways to expand my scholarship on public procurement. And this book is basically an outcome of my own contribution to vulnerability theory and my efforts to then widen that and invite other people in other parts of the world to think about this. Can you tell me a little more about some of the gaps that you found in vulnerability theory? Well, um, vulnerability theory, as um, coined and uh, refined by uh, Marta Feynman, uh, I can say it is uh, an institutionalist theory. But it starts with 
a more humane way, if I may say, of looking at society. From, so from a sociological perspective, it's really embedded in, in humanity as is, not as we want to theorize it. So Marcus start by saying, well, we have a problem. And the problem is that the liberal subject to which the law speaks to doesn't exist. It's not a human being as is. Why? Because there are some assumptions made. One of them is the, this idea of autonomy, independent. And she said, well, when you actually look at life as is, you will not find that anyway. You know, so we dependent from day one on other people. As we grow, as we age, what you notice is that we are not sufficient. We rely on other people, on friendship, whatever. She calls those stages of life as is, as sites of vulnerability that are not discriminatory, meaning they don't choose your zip code. These are not kind of manufactured vulnerabilities. Anybody can be sick at some point, all of us age, and there are a number of things that we cannot attribute to other aspects of identity. Vulnerability doesn't choose your gender. Men and women are, are vulnerable in different ways, in different contexts. So although rooted in the sociological understanding of humanity, vulnerability theory doesn't dwell on that. Then ask the question, if vulnerability is actually a human condition, if the true subject of law, the person the law is speaking to, is different, what does this mean in terms of our institution? Because one of the goals or, or the function of law is to frame institutions, is to build institutions. So her proposition was, well, rather than trying to first individualize certain situation in society or privatize them, let's say this is just a family thing, this is a private thing, the state therefore is responsible for human beings for society who's vulnerable. And therefore institutions must be able to identify, first of all, recognize that vulnerability and respond to it. In that broad, these broad strokes, one of the things that is assumed is that the state has the capability to do so, to respond to vulnerability, that is a shared human condition, that it has the means to attain that goal. That's number one. But number two, vulnerability theory would not speak strongly to cases where the state has actually been complicit in manufacturing vulnerability because we're talking about a human condition. However, when we also look at the human as is, when we look at society as is, when we look at state as is, as is global history as is, we also notice that at least together and in parallel maybe or intersecting, is that other type? So 
how does a state that has manufactured vulnerability alongside with your vulnerability as a human condition respond to that vulnerability to both types so these were areas that got me thinking got me thinking and got me thinking and i realized oh the gap here is the following is that we haven't in talking for me at least, from my perspective in reviewing uh, the literature on vulnerability theory, that that literature has not noticed the change in the entity we call the state. Now, these are not necessarily new because there hasn't been a perfect state on earth that has all the means to do whatever they want. It always relied more or less on non-state actors from the pirates, and, and we know this is a long history. But as a global phenomenon that is harmonized around a certain language very much embedded in law, and that is international trade law. So, so the scholarship were not taking into account that the state actually does not have the means to meet the ends. Now, if citizens through paying taxes, let's say a simple case, are responsible for building roads or providing launches, a launch at, at schools, and then it makes sense that some would argue in, in this sort of very simple, perfect democracy, that when we're talking about vulnerability, it can just be another item that is added there so we can make our society better and, better and well. But that's not the case. There are other players that are not citizens that we don't vote for, but that have all the legal standing and protection to deal with the state. And that space comes with what we call public procurement. The fact that the state relies on something else, but not to your usual tools, makes at best the work of correcting, alleviating, mitigating vulnerability and indirect work at best. It cannot be as, as obvious. So I wanted to pick up on this dynamic and say, to what extent can we run with this idea? Well, the first thing I discovered is that actually is that this is actually wonderful. Because as I said earlier, the idea that the private sector is always efficient and the public sector is always underperforming is an ideology that rise from you know the the 1980s with reagan in the united states margaret thatcher in the in the uk and the idea is to have a minimalist government but we didn't really have good cases to test that because i mean you would not compare the U.S. government to Tesla, you know, or to, to other private companies. Now, now we live in a world where companies are wealthier than few states combined. So just based on the dollar sign on all of that, you might actually say, oh, wow, there is something they are doing that that government cannot do. And this super empowered individual, they have something to say that is good for all of us. It's really, really, really tempting. Now, I'm not saying that they are the one who always enter into public procurement. There are all types of, for micro enterprise, from moms and pops sometimes, to middle-sized enterprises that can do business with government. But 
we didn't have a way of testing that idea. They might be efficient on their own, but what happens when they enter the public market that we finance, either through our loans, because if the government doesn't have a check, they have to borrow it from private individuals or like in emerging states or developing countries or middle-income countries, sometimes they don't have the check. They'll have to borrow from banks, from IMF, from the World Bank, for example. The public is paying either directly or indirectly. So what happened to this efficiency when it actually enters the public market? When it is a bit murkier than, than, than we see. So, And that is not always the fault of the, the private sector. What I found is that in these sort of spaces, sometimes the, the private sector is dealt badly with. Uh, the state misbehave. And other times it is the contrary. The state is taken advantage of, right? And most of the time, those who are really taking advantage is the public. So you then see that vulnerability here allows at least one from an analytical perspective to equalize actually partnerships. So if partnership there will be, if we cannot rescind, if we cannot undo with the stroke of the pen, this market dynamic that is very much now embedded in public economics, how are we going to mitigate? How are we going to make sure that the public in public-private partnerships, in public procurement is preserved? So this book is the first then to bring together vulnerability theory as developed by Feynman and public procurement. And it started by uh, my own contribution, as I said, as I was reflecting this as a visiting scholar, I wrote a piece where I sort of laid the foundation of how we might evolve and, and pursue our analysis. And the book itself is just then reaching out to scholars that are doing work on public procurement and saying, hey, uh, most of us are interested in gender dynamics. But can you now rethink gender from the perspective of shared vulnerability at best? And how can we imagine institutions that are ready, not just for shocks, because when we think of shocks, we think of like an economic crisis or a war or those sort of things, external shocks, but also for innovation as a shock. Because that's what market revolutions does. This public procurement, as this is documented by uh, UK scholars, they call it a global revolution, which actually was a shock in the way the public sector rethinks or thinks and does business, right? But because it is kind of a silent thing, it, it sort of happened and nobody sort of noticed. And therefore, we can think about it's not, only in terms, we're not bashing the other market, of course, but we're saying to what extent shocks when they are negative shocks, what kind of resilience can we imagine with this idea of vulnerability theory, not just as a human condition, but as an institutional reality. And I think Martha Feynman builds in her later work, she develops that idea that we ought to be thinking about vulnerability as also as an institutional reality. And when the shocks are positive, quote unquote positive, because the market is, is hybrid, is ambivalent, it's an ambivalent beast. You know, it, it has positive things, but it has also negative things. In this case, how can we then rethink resilience in this sort of case? So we are just 
we just carved a space and, and decided to look at gender. And this book is an outcome of that. So it is a, the first in terms of uh, number one, expanding vulnerability theory outside of the US and UK. It is a truly a global thing, which has not been done really before. It is the first to address the issue of gender and procurement globally. It is also the first where, even in terms of contributors, these are also colors of color looking at vulnerability theory. So on those three aspects, um, this is, uh, in my view, truly uh, innovative contribution to vulnerability theory, but also to public uh, economics, public policy, international trade, and so on, gender equi equity. How does gender play into international public procurement? And also as a second question, what was your process in soliciting contributors for this volume? Yes, I'm going to start with the, the second one. Public procurement, I would say outside of public administration in the U.S., is an obscure, something it is an obscure area of studies, but it is actually now, I like to say, if you do not understand procurement, you do not understand anything about public economics. You do not understand anything about how states function in, in, in the modern modern time. So uh, based on my previous work, I had written the first study of gender and procurement uh, using data from the African Development Bank. And I had a, I wrote a study of, uh, I made a study of, of 16 countries. That was my first. Of course, you mentioned the book that came in 2016 and other contributions. So we are very few who ha have taken up the issue of gender. So we sort of know each other. So it was very easy to sort of just reach out and say, hey, there is this other perspective. Do you have time? And are you willing to, to consider this? So it wasn't too much of a pain in reaching out. And I've also kind of started uh, building a network from, from my, my first book. Now, about the idea of gender, I approach it as a placeholder for social concern, broadly defined. And this is where it also speaks to vulnerability theory. So when the movement for the harmonization of public procurement globally started, the discourse and attitude was one that was interested in nothing else but the bottom line, which is money. Money, 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 and economics. Now, globally speaking, though, you have many people will recognize that if you're talking about economics, it is a bit foolish to think that only one gender is responsible for the productivity of a state. But yet everybody also recognizes that men and women have different challenges when it comes to the workforce, including here in the United States. So I wanted to find out from a purely economic and public policy perspective, whether or not even countries that had gender, uh, were promoting gender as a matter of an economic imperative, what happened to them the moment they were forced to liberalize, meaning to make their public procurement open to any bidder, bidder anyway, and to not discriminate between 
domestic firms and foreign firms. What happened to them? What you see or what I saw across the board in these 16 countries that I surveyed is that at the time that I first started, not one of them, not zero. They were completely zero, with the exception of South Africa, uh, which had constitutionalized public procurement, meaning that by um, a cons the constitution, they have to rely on a few instruments because the big thing there wasn't so much gender, but race and racism. So South Africa has taken note of that and said, okay, well, in our economics dealings, as far as public policy is concerned, we want to be cognizant of, of history and try to use some instrument to correct that. So that is a, a unique case. But no one was doing anything, even peripherally doing anything. And I was, I was puzzled, so something was, was wrong. And then I studied recommendations mostly by, by, by the, uh, the World Bank, because there were studies of countries, uh, procurement uh, systems before recommendation to how to liberalize, which sector uh, to liberalize. And I was noticing that some of the recommendations were counterintuitive because these sectors that you would think were crucial, fundamental, so strategic, they were in fact the ones that were being recommended to be open to all kinds of bidding. So then I could see that two things, either these states were caught off guard and didn't really have time to think about what is going into the new policies since we have to repeal old laws and quickly conform. So in fact, what I, I realized was that nowhere, for example, in Africa has there been a broad consultation. Every now and then you may say, well, there was a meeting with entrepreneurs and we decided that this is this is good. So there was no public consultation. There was no really thinking about that. And I was worried that just like with the structural adjustment, um, we were heading towards uh, a situation where uh, entrepreneurs were going to make a lot of money by signing deals and contracts that nobody sees, nobody knows what they are, the dealings with government. I was worried that this was going to increase corruption and, and shady deals, and, and that at the end of the day, the public will suffer. And I don't think my predictions were, were wrong in that sense. So it was this out of concern about the social broadly that I'm just really using gender because I'm passionate about it, but it is something that tells us something broadly about the, the future of social policy in places where the public, the government has opened everything without reserve to the bidding of the private sector to, to do business. Marta doesn't talk, she doesn't address this mm -hmm. uh, per se. And I don't think that I have ever read anything from a vulnerability theory actually thinking about law as, as vulnerable too. Law always has its own shadow. It's not like voting. Voting, you see people, you see bodies, you see infrastructure, whether you, it is online or not, right? You, you see those things. A problem with law is that, number one, it takes for itself 
the command and power that it doesn't share. The law tells you do not steal. It will never give you the power not to steal. You understand? At least, if not a vulnerability from a conceptual perspective, it, it is something that is at best a one, a one, like a one-way type of interaction. And that nature, because of that nature, because of that, it is a tool of vulnerability. Because it doesn't address its own shadows, it doesn't address its own defect. It can help you to behave in a certain way. It does not share the power, and I'm going to say empower, empower, share the power for action. It's like, yeah, I, I told you not to, 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 to steal. Let, let, let me see what it's going to do. So then when we're talking about public policy, when we're talking about embedding, so we talked about vulnerability as a shared human condition, right? But embedding, embedding public policy, which always work to law, whether it is administrative law or whatever, through embedding that thought, well, no wonder that the best resistance will come from law first. Because by nature, it's just this thing that we call, we call it that. Law doesn't respond to it. We, we, we say colloquially, no one is above the law. How do we actually know that? You know, it, it is, a, it is a, a theoretical concept, but so powerful. How can we say we are a society of free people, right? But yet we mentally and cognitively submit ourselves to something that we can never be in relationship with. And then some people then exploit that loophole. That's what I was trying to say, that then they will use the same law to manufacture vulnerability or to hide behind a legal deal. They say, no, 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 nothing wrong was done. It was a legal deal, but a morally wrong and clearly objectionable type of deal. If you follow African Politics right now, uprising everywhere and military coups. Why? Because France is capable of legally tying ex-colonies to its own patrimony so that endlessly they can buy uranium for a few cents in Niger. You see? So I have never heard that perspective like, actually, let's look at the law as an instrument of vulnerability itself, right? Because I think that is what this book is trying to do where unless vulnerability can really travel, starting with the human, right? Going into the, the institution, circling back into law as a thing. Unless it does that sort of journey, it will still be a concept that will be waiting for someone to come and do that, to be expanded, to actually make sense. That's my take on it. <laughs> How do you distinguish between the ability of the state to manufacture vulnerability in the way that you're talking about it and the ability of the state to distribute resilience? Mm -hmm. Yes. <clears throat> the state as, as, as a construct is a forum of compromises. 
it's a, how we come to understand that we can come together and figure out a way of living together, uh, sharing resources from a vulnerability perspective, uplifting all boots uh, to the extent that we can. Those are all ideas, but no state can survive just from ideas. Action must follow because we nobody wakes up and say, hey, uh, good morning, Colorado. How are you? How did you sleep? No, nobody, you don't meet the state. I ask my student, have you ever meet, met the United States? They, they go like, oh, I never thought about it. You know, no, no, you've never met the United States, right? So these are just concepts. The state becomes real through actions to concrete stuff. So distribution, we think of it in terms of money, resources, right? Allocation, appropriation, and, and all of that. And yes, economics drives all of this, right? But if we are economizing, if the idea of economics is, or if we use economics as a matter of, it's like a lottery, you know, hey, we're all blind, let me just throw money there and see where it lands. We could do that. And maybe we a fairer <laughs> situation. But unfortunately, that's not how Congress works. We know exactly what goes behind Congress and how they have to compromise on this and that. So the redistribution is always going to be something that is different from equalizing. But I think we can talk about equity. So we're not into, at least I find equalizing hard and maybe unrealistic. But what do we mean by equity? From a purely economic perspective, we are a bunch of citizens that are all productive, right? Even the child with some developmental challenges is very productive because that child brings happiness to someone who otherwise might be depressed, who otherwise might uh, be so depressed that the next thing that person is doing is buying a gun and shooting in, in innocent people, right? It is that we have to go back and value the valuation. What is it? What is it, what is it that we call productive forces, for productive energies? Because under a capitalist society, we reward the capital. We see capital as the only productive thing. That is what capitalism is. You have capital to build on it and build on it and build on it, right? But unless we also start thinking about, well, but is it all? When you wake up in the morning, you're not just vulnerable, you know, you, you want good laughter, right? And guess what? Maybe it's just that homeless person you, you're passing by today. That's just going to make you say, hey, you know, it's just another day. So we're not there yet. So that's why I think for me, uh, when I talk about economics and, and, and public policy, you cannot talk about it really truly from, from, from one perspective. You have to have some sort of a moral argument. You have to have some sort of willingness to shift the paradigm, recognize that which we've been able to accomplish on the uh, capitalism and all of that through the market, positive, but also say that is only an incomplete story. The problem we are raising with procurement to say the, the partial story, the incomplete story is not working. It is not working for us. And therefore, 
and we're not just saying that to bash for the sake of bashing. It is an invitation to rethink the story about production, about valuation. What do we value? Do we value good schools in the Congo? Or do we value some people in New York wearing diamonds from the Congo? <laughs> you know, we can value both, but we have to think that we have to think about it. We have to bring it to the conversation, you see? So the public, that was my, that was what I said. What is public? Public just means what is common to all of us without discrimination. You cannot exclude, okay? For someone else. You cannot exclude the black, the whites, the, the homeless. You cannot exclude. So it is a vision of society which is really about inclusion. So how do we do it? We cannot pretend to distribute that which we haven't embraced, that which we haven't recognized. So the market, they say, well, it, it, it sort of, it will redistribute blindly. Well, it doesn't work like that. We, I'm sorry for my colleagues in economics, but it doesn't work like that for everybody. And I am in, at least I'm, I'm speaking in my own voice. I'm in a business of figuring out how can we work together? Is this working for me? Is it working for you? Is it working for my neighbor? Because at the end of the day, this is what's going to break or make society. Otherwise, we're going to be talking about the same old things um, for the next 100 years. What would you like? listeners to remember from our conversation today if you have to pick one or two takeaways i think the the takeaway um uh, here is that from the perspective of institutional building and strengthening uh, the state remains an important actor that sometimes may rely on other partners, non-state actors, to fulfill its public mission. That in of itself is not necessarily new. It is a historical trend, but that has taken a uh, different proportion aided by international law to, uh, in some case, uh, open up public procurement to uh, competitive bidding. That said, uh, we have to then rethink vulnerability theory in light of these changes, because not to do that would be like building something new on a defunct uh, entity. The state is not uh, self-sufficient. It might be so from a legal abstract perspective. In reality, that's not how it works. So by interrogating this space, that can be a site of vulnerability through corruption, capture, further social alienation, what have you, and a source of unrest, I think by looking at these vulnerabilities, going to start speaking to world reality that is outside of the Anglo-American experience. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here today and sharing your wisdom with me and research. This has been an episode of Voices in Vulnerability. Dr. Niak's book is available through Rutledge. I'll put a link in the episode description and on our social media. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at VHC Initiative, or on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Thanks for tuning in.